and your love for your people from before the foundation of the universe. You ordained not only our salvation, but our sanctification, the way our faith would grow and be strengthened. We thank you for the apostle who wrote this letter, Peter, for his deep spirituality and his understanding of the Christian faith and how much he taught him and guided him by the Spirit to write the things of God here. Help us, Lord, to understand your truth today, to bring it into our lives and to continue to grow in our faith as your children and as your servants. We pray in Jesus' precious name. First Peter 1, 6 through 9. Today I'd like for us to think about the most important thing that we have. It's not our family, it's not our health, it's not our money, but it's our faith, our Christian faith. It's the most important thing we have because it's given to us by God and nobody can take it away from us. The enemies of Christ could take away our possessions. They could take away our freedom by putting us in prison. They could even take away our life, but they can't take away our faith. Our faith is like gold. Gold is one of the sturdiest substances in all of God's creation. Fire cannot destroy it or discolor it. If a house burns down, and there's gold jewelry or coins in the house, you can dig through the ashes and the gold will still be there, untouched and undamaged. The Christian faith is like that. Once a person has faith as the gift of God, he or she cannot lose it. No matter what happens, no matter what trials of life may come our way, faith remains Solid and shining like gold. It remains fixed on Christ. Christ the unchangeable one. He is not disturbed or distressed or surprised by the trials of his people on earth. He's with us every step of the way. So we read in our text today. Verse 5 says, In this you rejoice. Well, what is the this that Peter's talking about? Whatever this is, it's cause for rejoicing. So let's consider, first of all, our reason for rejoicing. We have to look at the context. See what went before verse 6 to know what Peter is talking about. Maybe you remember in our previous two studies, verse 3 Christian believers have been given a living hope, not a dead hope, not a stagnant hope, but a living, vital hope because God raised His Son from the dead. He's our living Savior. He's alive forever, therefore our hope is alive. It's alive and well because Jesus is alive and well. He's ruling and reigning from heaven's throne. Nothing passes his eyes, or his knowledge. He's alive and well to shepherd and govern his people and bring us at last to his everlasting kingdom. 
Last week we saw from verses 4 and 5 that we have an invincible inheritance. Invincible means it cannot be conquered or taken away from us. We have an invincible inheritance from Christ. And verse 5 says we're shielded by faith through God's power. It's like God reaches down from heaven with an invisible shield and he deflects all the enemies all the enemies evil schemes and plans everything that satan might want to throw at us it's knocked down by the shield of god's power our living hope is based and grounded upon christ's resurrection from the dead linked to his resurrection we're kept and guarded by God's power until Christ's return. We're kept safe and guarded by God's power. What power is greater than God's power? He created the universe with the word of his mouth. He is strong to guard his people until he receives them into his presence. Well, in this world of trouble and trials and sin and evil that we live in, this is a great message. This is great cause for rejoicing. When we consider our own sins and failures, we see the evil in our culture all around us and in the world. Jesus is risen. Jesus is keeping and guarding his people in this troubled world. He's ruling and reigning over all creation, and he will at last bring us safely into his eternal kingdom. That beloved physician-turned-preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones in England, says that joy should be the mark of the Christian life. If we don't have joy, he says we're not a very good witness. And I think we're going to learn from our passage today that we can be joyous Christians in all the ups and downs of life. The Apostle Paul... The other principal writer of the New Testament, whom we all know well, having read his writings, had plenty of trials in his life. He was beaten to a pulp, almost died. But the unwavering mark of his Christian life was an unquenchable joy in the Lord. So he had the right perspective on life. Our trials are temporary, though they may be uh, excruciating, they're temporary. But our home is with Christ, and that home is eternal. So, verse 6 continues here. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So, we not only have cause for rejoicing, but... We have the necessity of trials in our life. What does he mean by trials? It's not going to court, but it's testings, difficulties, hardships, distresses. He calls them various trials. So he evidently means that these trials and testings can come from many different directions. 
A lot of them are just the common problems of life that everybody experiences, Christian or non-Christian. Problems with health, with school and job and finances, with relationships and so forth. But trials will also come from the fact that we're Christians. And the world does not approve or appreciate what we believe about Jesus Christ or the way we live before Him. And so we may well be persecuted or at least mocked and made fun of for our Christian convictions. Peter uses this phrase, if necessary. Well, evidently the trials we go through are considered necessary by God or we wouldn't be going through them. But our trials do accomplish certain goals in God's plan for His people. Now, Peter says three things about these trials here. First of all, he says they're grievous. They're not just inconvenient or a bother, but they call us grief. They cause us grief, emotional pain and distress. They may cast us to our knees, crying out to God for help. Nothing pleasant about trials. But God knows which trials will be suited best for each individual. The thing that comforts us is that our trials do not come to us by accident. God leads us into trials. He accompanies us in trials. We're never separated from God in our trials. A friend of ours had some very serious health problems. The last few years of his life, he had many operations. And I talked to him one day after he'd come out of the hospital. And he told me that he was in that hospital room laying there in excruciating pain. And he called out to God and said, Enough! And the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, That's for me to decide. And when he heard that, he rejoiced. Because he knew that what he was going through was under the superintendence of God's hand. Well, he got out of the hospital and continued to live a few more years. Well, Paul, uh, Peter rather goes on to say that these trials come to us, the end of verse 6, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our trials are not only grievous, but they're a necessity because they test the genuineness of our faith. Well, how does this work? How do trials test the genuineness of our faith? How do they verify the reality of our faith? Peter gives us a very clear illustration of what he's talking about. He says our faith is tested. The idea here, idea here is our faith is tested the same way gold is tested. Now in the ancient world, gold would often be found along the creek and river uh, banks where they would like pan gold like they used to pan gold here in the American West. I've done that before. Uh, and the little specks of gold will be taken out, but it would always be 
joined with other kinds of stone and sand. And so this substance, mixture of gold and other uh, minerals would be melted. High temperature. And the impurities would rise to the top. And they'd be skimmed off. And what would be left would be pure gold. So melting the gold would turn it into a more concentrated and pure form of gold. That's what trials do to our faith. They cause the impurities to come up to the surface. Our spiritual weaknesses, our spiritual defects, our spiritual ignorance, they bring them up to the surface to make them more noticeable so that they can be dealt with. If the fire was not put to the mixture of gold and other minerals... It would remain mixed, but it's the fire that enables the gold to be purified. And so with us, it's the heat, the fire of trials that test our faith. That old saint named Job was tested by trials, and through it all he learned that he too needed to learn a few things. He needed to learn that things that happen in life under the sovereignty and purposes of God. We cannot dictate to God what he might do. Well, actually, it's a mercy of God that he tests our faith with these trials. Otherwise, we would remain ignorant and complacent in our own spiritual weaknesses, our remaining sinful habits and erroneous thinking. The renewal of the mind is a process that takes our whole Christian life. It's a growing in the knowledge of the Word and having it applied and worked in to our own lives. A Christian who's converted at age 20 should be a much more mature believer by the age 60 after he or she has been tested by fire for 40 years. They should be more mature, more stronger, more knowledgeable. And I think this generally does happen. Now, it does seem true that some people have greater and more excruciating trials than other people. We don't know why this is. We don't know why some of us have to have terrible trials and others seem not to have so many. But maybe it's because God gets more glory from the life of a believer who's really suffering from extremely difficult trials. So ultimately, it works for God's glory. The most important thing in the universe, the glory of God. We could be involved in bringing glory to God even in our suffering. It's difficult to accept this when we're in the middle of a terrible trial. But we have to look at the whole context of this passage. There's an abiding joy with a Christian no matter how hard the trial. It's a realization that we belong to the Lord and these trials will eventually pass. The beginning of verse 6, Peter says, Though now for a little while. So, they're temporary. Some are longer than others. 
But in comparison with the eternity of glory and peace and joy that awaits us at our final destination, these trials will only be a drop in the bucket. So our trials are grievous, and they test us. They test the genuineness, how true and real and solid is our faith. And there's another point about our trials. They will bring glory to Christ at his return. It says here, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just think. We can put these trials at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, these trials are for your glory, for your honor, for your praise that you've put us through. When Christ returns, he will be glorified by his people for the great work of salvation, sanctification, purification, and maturity that he accomplished in his people. These people that will be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ will not be spiritual infants, untrained in the ways of God, but people who've been through the fires of trials and grown to trust Christ, to repent of our sins and cling to Christ as we grow in the knowledge of his word. These people that will be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ will be battle-hardened warriors who know what it's like to fight with a right hand and a left hand, casting aside the darts, the fiery darts of Satan. They will be the true heroes who gave up the comfort of their own lives to lay down their lives for the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the earth. Peter, we should remember, was not a person unexperienced in the trials of life. He'd been Jesus' faithful right-hand man, but then he also failed the Lord in the hour of testing. He denied him. He had to be restored. And then later, he compromised the Christian uh, welcome of people from all backgrounds into the faith when he withdrew from table fellowship for the Gentiles when Paul, uh, when the Judaizers came up to Galatia. So there again, he yielded the pressure of man. Had to repent again. So he's a man who knew trials. He'd been through them. He failed sometimes. But he repented and he came out. Besides his own personal trials, Peter, remember, had been one of the twelve apostles in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved and they began meeting in various places around Jerusalem. We assume that each apostle had a group that he was pastoring. Peter likely was pastor of one of these groups. He was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. He was a pastor of pastors. He had ministered to the people of God for many years. He was obviously a man of sharp observation. He was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 
He counseled with other leaders in the early church. And by the Holy Spirit, he was given to understand something about the trials of the Christian life and how they function. He was a man of experience who was taught by the Spirit of God who knew the Word of God. Besides being at Jesus' side for three years and observing Jesus as he interacted with people, God used all the experiences of his life and inspired him to write about the trials of the Christian life. He was a veteran pastor who had no doubt walked with the people of God through many of their own trials. And it was the inspiration of the Spirit that makes Peter's advice here worth its weight in gold. The inspiration of the Spirit guided him so that what he wrote here for us is worth its weight in gold to help us understand trials. The trials of the Christian life are tough. But Peter gives us invaluable help in navigating our way through them. What he says is so valuable. Look at what he says in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You do not see him now, yet you believe in him, and you rejoice with this great joy. So, the next thing we see about the necessity of these trials is that we live not only with trials, but the believer's present experience is crowned with many blessings. Trials are not the whole of the Christian life. They're only part of it. Our Christian life is enhanced by three wonderful aspects of our relationship with Jesus that Peter talks about here. First of all, love for the unseen Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You can say that to us, right? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now Peter was fortunate. He had seen Jesus. He not only seen him, but he rubbed shoulder with him for three years. So he had somewhat of an advantage, I guess we could say, over these Gentile believers that lived several hundred miles north of Jerusalem in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And so Peter was ministering to them perhaps 10 or 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he understood well that they had never seen Jesus as he had. Peter had been with Jesus and he saw the great compassion of the Lord as he healed and delivered people of every age and in every kind of situation, infirmity of body and mind. He listened to Jesus instruct the people about God and about himself and about the Holy Spirit and how humans should relate to God and to one another. He had seen Jesus in hand-to-hand combat with Satan with demons delivering people oppressed by the devil. And uh, Peter had seen firsthand with his own eyes that truly Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
Peter had been with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and heard him wrestling in prayer at the horrible prospect of having to go to the cross and bear in his own sinless, innocent body the sins of his people from all generations. Peter saw Jesus take the abuse of the Roman soldiers and from his own people. He saw Jesus dying on the cross from a distance, I believe. And then he got to be there several times when Jesus was raised from the dead and even had a personal visit from Jesus on Resurrection Day to restore him from his denial, we believe. So Peter was truly a blessed man. He got to experience all these interactions with the Lord Jesus. Something about Jesus Christ drew men and women to him. He was strong, but he was tender. Jesus confronted evil head on. He confronted the religious hypocrisy of his people. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Peter was overwhelmed by the kindness and love of his Savior. So Peter could not help but love the Lord Jesus with all of his heart. Peter served the Lord Jesus Christ as his chief apostle all the days of Christ's life. And then later, some years later, as he was being killed for his faith, according to tradition, under Nero's persecution, when they were about to crucify Peter, he requested that it be crucified upside down rather than right side up because he didn't feel like he was worthy enough to be, persecuted, uh, to be crucified right side up. So how could Peter say to these Gentile Christians, though you've not seen him, you love him? Yes, they had never seen Jesus with their own eyes, but they'd heard of Him. And they'd seen Him in the eyes of their thoughts and imaginations as they listened to Peter tell them what he had known and seen and experienced of Jesus Christ. They had heard the Gospel. They had seen Jesus with the eyes of their heart. What they heard and learned about Jesus caused them to love Him also as Peter did. Peter confirmed to them, declared to them what he had seen and heard of the Lord Jesus and their love for Jesus began to be just like Peter's love for Jesus. We are in the same situation as these Gentile Christians, are we not? We haven't seen Jesus, listened to him, we haven't seen him heal a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. But what we have read in the Gospels, what we have heard in the preaching of the Word has engendered in our own minds and hearts the kind of love that Peter had for Jesus and the kind of love that these Gentile Christians far north of Palestine were experiencing as they heard about Christ. 
And He became real to them. It's because the Word of the Gospel is powerful. The preaching of the Gospel is God's ordained way of communicating divine truth to His people. To hear the Word of the Gospel speak of Jesus Christ is just as real and authoritative as He was standing in our presence speaking to us Himself. This is how authoritative the Word of God is. We should never underestimate the truth and the authority of the Scriptures. It is a truly holy book given by God to God's people. It is to be treasured. It is to be received. The Scriptures speak of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Divinity, clothed with humanity, who walked among men and women, The scriptures call upon us to believe in him, to repent of our sins, to call upon Jesus as the Lord of our lives. Peter, rather Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So Peter was preaching the word of the cross. It was the power of God to them. They believed it. And they were saved. These people saw Jesus Christ in the preaching of Peter's gospel. They beheld him. They believed in him. And they followed Jesus. And they became his disciples. And Peter goes on in verse 8. And he adds this. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. They not only love Jesus, but they believed in Jesus. They're really two sides of the same coin. Love leads to belief, I think we could say, and belief leads to love. All this was happening in their lives with never having seen Jesus face to face. They just had the authority of Peter's gospel, born by the Holy Spirit, carried into their minds and hearts, which engendered engendered faith in their lives. So they believed and confessed and followed Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the eyes of faith today? Have you seen Him in the Scriptures? Have you beheld His miracles, His teaching, His sufferings, and His victory over death? Have you seen it? Have you seen Him? Have you believed? Have you seen Him and come to love Him? This is what the Word of the Gospel calls us to do, how we are to respond. It's the Word of the Gospel that accomplishes this in our lives. How can we not treasure the Bible, the Word of God, the Old and New Testaments? For there we find the buried treasure of the gospel that's so precious and valuable that we would sell everything we have so that we could have it. We'd give up everything and anything so that we could have the gospel, the one it points to, the Lord Jesus Christ. To have Jesus. That's what life is all about. To come to Him in faith and love and repentance. Have you seen him? Have you seen him in the gospel? Do you love him? 
You believe in him? Are you following him? Confessing him as Lord and Savior? Have you done that? The beginning of your Christian life and the waters of baptism? Are you growing? Are you growing in him? Are you becoming more acquainted with the Holy Scriptures? Which you may read at your, at your kitchen table or through the preaching of the Word at church or on the internet. Isaiah said, Come, come to the waters of salvation. Buy. You don't need money. Just come and take the water of life. Drink freely. It won't cost you anything. But you have to come. You have to drink. You have to receive Jesus Christ. You have to know Him, embrace Him, to see Him, to believe Him through the gospel, and then follow Him all the days of our lives. The trials may come and the trials may go, but our compass, if it's set on Jesus Christ, it's set on true north, and He will guide us after. He will guide us and afterward he'll receive us unto glory. We love that song, uh, To Be a Pilgrim. He who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent. His first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories do but themselves confound. His strength the more is. No foes shall stay his might, though he with giants fight. He will make good his right to be a pilgrim. Since, Lord, thou dost defend us with thy spirit, we know we at the end shall life Inherit. Then fancies flee away. I'll fear not what men say. I'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. Have you been called to be a pilgrim? Let's labor day and night to be a pilgrim. Peter has one more thing to say about the believer's present experience of the unseen Christ. He says, You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Life has its trials. They can be very grievous. But Peter observed something in these believers that he wrote about. He saw that they had obtained a joy that was so deep and so all-pervasive that it encompassed surrounded and filled their lives. They realized who Jesus Christ is and how He had come from heaven to save them from their sins and give them eternal life. They understood this and they were overwhelmed with gratitude. They've been worshipers of idols, things made of wood and stone and precious metal. Demons, 
worked around and through idols. They, they had worshipped false gods that were only going to send them to hell. They'd been immersed in all kinds of sins. But then one day that began to change. And the gospel message come to them, came to them. They learned about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the living hope in Christ, light and truth. Salvation came to the lost human race and the apostles of Jesus obeyed his command and they spread out throughout the Roman world and began to preach about Jesus. And so light and deliverance and salvation had come to these people to whom Peter is writing. They realized, after they heard the gospel, the spiritual peril that they had been living in. But then the God of the universe clothed himself in our humanity. He came down to planet earth to rescue a people for his name. And they had been included in that elect number. Oh, the mercy of God. Oh, the kindness of God. Oh, the love of God. It had come to them, even to them even to these lost Gentile sinners. It was like rain after months of drought. It was like eating a rich meal after having been starved for two weeks. It was like instantaneous healing from a dreaded and fatal disease. It was light that chased away the darkness. Love came to replace hate. And glory came to replace their shame. But it had come. It had come to them in power and conviction and the truth of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit. The morning star had risen in their hearts. Truth had replaced error. Light had chased away the darkness. Their sadness had turned to joy. They were overwhelmed when they realized that the living God had come to save them from their sins. Words were not enough to express their joy. Peter calls it inexpressible joy. They used every word they could think of in their language to praise and thank God, but they couldn't quite thank God enough. Human language was not totally capable of expressing what they had experienced, what they knew, and what they felt. They were filled with overwhelming joy and the glory of the Lord. And there's one last point that Peter makes here. Verse 9, he says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice here that it says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith. It is something that is happening. That is a present tense verb. Something that was happening right then and there. They were experiencing, at that time, the salvation of their souls. They had been born again by the ministry of the Spirit. Jesus had been raised from the dead. They had begun to experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in their lives. This is true conversion. This is scriptural conversion. This is the way salvation works. The Spirit of God enters a human life and that person is changed forever. There's a new presence, a new power in their lives. 
the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's why salvation is permanent for the believer. Remember what Peter said in verse 4. Their inheritance could never perish, could never spoil or fade away because it's guarded by God's power until the last time. Salvation for our souls is an experience given by God that begins now and goes on forever. Now when he says souls, he's not limiting that to the, just the soul, the spiritual part of man, but the soul is like the center of human consciousness. It's linked to the body. The soul and body will be together forever. Peter says that this salvation experience begins now. It's going on now. God is sanctifying us. But it does have a goal. It's an outcome. It's the end, the summing up, the consummation. It's like the goal of a basketball team to win the game or the the goal of a treasure hunter to to raise up that sunken Spanish galleon off the coast of Florida and, and find the treasure chest of gold. The end of our salvation is to transform the faith that we live into sight, to be in the presence of the one whom we now see with the eyes of faith, to see him face to face, to worship him, to embrace him, to express our adoration and devotion to him as we fall at his feet. Until that time, we have to go through the necessity of trials for the perfection and the refining of our faith. But it works for our spiritual maturity and it will bring glory to Christ now and when he returns. So until then, Peter would exhort us to keep loving Jesus, keep believing in Jesus, keep rejoicing in Jesus, We have a living hope because of Christ's resurrection from the dead. It will be completed and consummated at Christ's return. And so we await that glorious day. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that we have this text today which shows us that trials have a purpose, even a necessity. They test our faith so that it will come forth as gold and result in the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't see you, but we believe in you and we love you. We pray that our love and our belief would grow stronger and stronger. We thank you for such blessings. Lord, sustain us in our trials. Encourage us in our trials. Bring us through our trials. May we honor and glorify you in our trials and give us the joy, Lord, that nothing can can take away, even in the midst of the difficulties of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please note on your song sheet that I have made a mistake.